0: You're listening to a special Fourth Estate podcast edition. This is a longer version of a discussion I had with Libby Hogan, a multimedia journalist on the ground in Myanmar. She's been covering an interesting story about the role Facebook is playing in the Rohingya crisis, which the UN has described as textbook definition ethnic cleansing. According to the UNHCR, more than 600,000 Rohingya refugees have fled violence in Myanmar since last August. I'm going to let Libby explain more about this story. But if you've already listened to this week's episode of Fourth Estate, I recommend jumping to about four minutes thirty.
1: So, my name's Libby Hogan, and I'm a journalist working in Myanmar. I'm currently working with a Burmese broadcaster called Democratic Voice of Burma. So,
0: the article that you helped The Guardian put out featured or was looking at research done by Raymond Serato. Can you give me a bit of a summary about what that was all about?
1: Sure. So last year, after the Rohingya crisis really spiked in August and we saw over 600,000 Rohingya refugees flee to Bangladesh, what was also really confronting here was looking at the hate speech and fake news online. I myself um, experienced a lot of trolls on both Twitter and Facebook. But on Facebook, what was really interesting was not only was there fake accounts such as the Rohingya were burning down their own houses, also reports such as, uh, different Muslim militants are coming to blow up the most sacred uh, Buddhist sculptures and Buddhist buildings in Myanmar, what was more confronting was also that there was no public condemnation of any of these posts or any of these quite vicious attacks. So I started following this myself just curiously from about August, but it was really hard to find any data to put around anecdotally what I was experiencing and what other journalists and um, we, what we were seeing online. I started to reach out to some cybersecurity groups and what was actually happening here, was there anyone that was trying to educate either in the public or in schools, also a little bit about Facebook, because we do have to remember that it's only recently really come into Myanmar, so there's a lack of education in general around internet literacy. So I started speaking to Raymond Serrato, following him on Twitter, I noticed that he was Uh, A data scientist, he was following a lot of the Buddhist groups that were aligned with a nationalist group called Mabatha. And they are infamous for very sharp attacks on the Rohingya. um, And they often uh, have posts that share a lot of fake news and also not only put down and voice discrimination against the Rohingya, but they also try and organize different rallies and whatnot. So they're a very powerful group. What was really interesting chatting to Raymond Serrato was he was able to put anecdotally into figures this massive increase in posts that we saw. So in some of these Facebook groups of the right-wing nationalist groups, what we saw was suddenly a massive surge in both posts and sharing of posts and interaction. So he monitored about 15,000 Facebook posts since June, so that was well before the attacks actually happened in Rakhine State, And he followed it right up until the big attacks in August and then afterwards. And he noticed a spike around the 24th and 25th of August of around 200% in these groups. So that's massive. And this is when it starts to get interesting because we think if there was this clear evidence that was starting to come out then and it's now come out um, holistically over a large time frame – What was Facebook's response if these posts were being alerted to them?
0: Do you think that there was an actual correlation between the hate posts that were going out and the violence that was happening on the streets of Myanmar?
1: Yeah, so it was happening clearly at the same time. You didn't have it in the streets necessarily. It wasn't something like what we might have seen overseas um, in Sri Lanka, for example. But in Rakhine State, for sure, it was definitely fueling the fire there because you did have some local groups also uh, helping the clearance groups, allegedly, that were also um, taking attacks on the Rohingya. So there's not necessarily a direct this post and then this was the reaction on the streets, but it was more what we were seeing online. It was a really clear indication that At this particular time, 24th and 25th of August, when we saw the attacks, there's really clear data that also point to what was happening online with the hate speech. So to kind of get some
0: context, I wanted to ask you what the climate is there for press freedom and how easy it is to be a journalist in Myanmar.
1: Press freedom in Myanmar is really under threat. We were hoping that the new government would be a little bit more responsive to working with journalists and speaking uh, to media regularly but the state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi has only held one press conference and instead most of the information that comes from the government is actually through the state councillor's Facebook page In terms of journalists doing their job, there's a lot of restrictions around which areas you can and cannot go to. And with the Rohingya crisis, it's currently a blackout area. So journalists can't visit northern Rakhine, which is where the Rohingya have fled from since the August attacks last year into Bangladesh. So really, it's a tough time here for both local and international journalists.
0: What has it been like for you as a journalist working on this story in this environment? It
1: has been a really difficult story to cover, and I've actually been sitting on it for a number of months because I wanted to make sure that I had as much data as possible so that I could cross-reference a lot of these sources and also put to practice what was actually Some of the positive things that were happening here were some CSOs that had been quietly raising their voice saying, look, we need to call out this hate speech and we need to get Facebook to start um, taking on some of these challenges. And one of the biggest challenges I found was not only trying to find data, but also the factor of safety. So a lot of sources couldn't speak to me on the record because they were scared for either themselves, for what was going to happen online, online attacks but there's also more serious cases of what happens outside of the internet and what gets alerted to authorities. So it's a really dangerous time and it's also uh, an interesting time because if you do make yourself public and under the weak laws here, there is some laws that can be twisted around. For example, online defamation is something that's very loosely worded. And in the past year, we've also seen a number of local journalists actually face trial and be charged under this law. So it's definitely a challenging story. And it took a lot of time in order to get all the right pieces.
0: Are people afraid because of the people who are expressing hate in these groups? Or is this fear from the system as well?
1: I think it's both. I think Online, they're worried for their own safety. If they put their name out there, it can be a really quick campaign you see of uh, different hate speech notorious groups suddenly posting your details on these pages, on these groups and kind of raising a bit of movement to either troll or attack you online. They've actually done quite a serious job of sometimes posting personal information of some uh, different people they want to attack as well. So it's both their personal safety as well as some of this work that they, a lot of the local CSOs want to do is really positive, but they are not too sure if they should put their name out there publicly. So some groups have been realising hate speech is a really big problem here in Myanmar and there needs to be more education. But if they put their name out there, they're worried that authorities might also shut down what they haven't even really been able to get going um, in full momentum. It's only just the ideas of let's do internet literacy. Let's try and do more about education online.
0: How important is Facebook in Myanmar? Why is this platform so crucial to the people there?
1: So in Myanmar's population, you've got 53 million residents. And back in 2014, less than 1% had internet. Now there's um, about 14 million citizens that have access to Facebook and are active users. That's massive. And that jump in a couple of years has also meant that there hasn't been a lot of education and experience with knowing how to protect yourself online and how to know what's real news and what's fake news. So a lot of people, what's the kind of common situation is you might go to the phone shop here and you can get quite a cheap smartphone so they will instantly ask, can you please set up my Facebook account? They won't know their name or their password, which is the first step of setting up their account. They'll just let their phone technician do it. So already we have a big privacy problem on our hands, but then a lot of people don't actually know what exists outside of the Facebook app. So if I ask some colleagues or friends sometimes, they might go into Facebook and search in the search button. They won't go outside of the app and go to different browsers and think about the internet exists outside Facebook. So in Myanmar, Facebook is the internet.
0: What about the other forms of media that exist? If you were, um, you know, an average citizen there, what type of other media and news would you be consuming?
1: So in Myanmar, the media has been very strong, both print and radio for many years, particularly during the military crackdown. What is interesting is a lot of journals in the Burmese language are very strong and still the first point of call, but for the younger citizens, we see that they are getting their news online. So sometimes they might be on Facebook and liking certain Facebook pages of news groups. So the big international groups here, for example, are BBC Burmese or Voice of America, but then the local Burmese trusted independent outlets range from something like the Irrawaddy, which had to operate outside, um, but is actually under quite a lot of criticism for how they've covered the Rohingya crisis. There's also other names, for example, there's um, Nazima, Democratic Voice of Burma, Frontier, Eleven Daily, there's a range of independent journals and 24-hour news broadcasters. So it's quite a diverse media landscape, and we are seeing that people get their sources of information previously from all of these different groups. But now we're starting to see a lot of people just get their news from what their friends are sharing online.
0: If people were consuming those other mediums in Myanmar, do you think there would be an equilibrium, a balance between the the consumption of perhaps hateful speech on Facebook and the rest of the the media and the rest of the content that could be
1: more balanced? I think... Yes, that is part of the problem is that a lot of people are only getting their news from Facebook. But also I think you do have a point there because there's also a lot of discussion around how has both the local media been covering the Rohingya crisis versus international. So more broadly here, it's also a challenge between what are the two diverse narratives that are being presented to the audience. So in international media, the we see a lot of covering the Rohingya crisis and hearing from the Rohingya themselves. But in Burmese media, you don't even hear from the Rohingya. You you don't hear the name. You hear Muslims in Rakhine or you hear what they call Bengali. And they use this name to say, these people don't have citizenship to this country. We're not going to honour their name. We're going to call them Bengalis. So definitely... Local media has also been criticised for their coverage. It's really hard here to try and find something that's in the middle. So you do have different extremes. You do have some media that's trying to do a really good job at present what is a balanced report, hearing from both those that why do they feel this hate? Why? why? Is it because of lack of information? Is it because of fear? Is it because of what they've been reading online and they haven't been able to fact-check it? Um, and then, when they turn to traditional media sources, such as some of the daily newspapers here they're also hearing what is the line of the government which is not addressing the big problem here in the crisis
0: so've got we 've got a problem across the media, um, but do you think Facebook should be taking more responsibility as a broadcaster to be to be shaping the message that is going out on their platform?
1: Yes, I do think Facebook needs to be taking more of a responsibility talking to some of the local organisations here that are also trying to fight against hate speech and to set up some platforms where they are educating users about what is fake news and what's not. A point that they made is one of the big challenges is the limitations in the language. So, for example, when I'm typing the Burmese script on Facebook, you'll, you'll type about five different letters to form certain words, but it will start back to front And some of the language uh, search buttons, for example, won't pick up specific hate speech words because it will depend which way you put together the letters back to front. So it's actually really difficult, the language here, in terms of trying to search a lot of the time and monitor certain words that would be able to type into an algorithm to find out, okay, here are some inflammatory words and here are some posts after just typing in a simple formula because it's still very new in terms of the Burmese script here on Facebook. Another problem is that some of the groups here really want to have more access to understand how big the problem is, is it in certain areas, and to work with Facebook and to work with some of the data. So they've actually said we want to work with them and We would like Facebook to share some of the data with us so that we can track how disinformation or hate speech spreads on the platform. This is also a point that was raised in one of the interviews I did with Alan Davis, who led a two-year monitoring project here in Myanmar. And he found it quite difficult also to monitor what they chose to do in the end was to monitor some of the Facebook closed groups because this was where you saw really a hot bed of hate speech and it was uh, groups that were posting regularly. But again, when they were alerted sometimes to authorities, they have claimed that Facebook did take its time sometimes to get back and take down some of the hate speech hate speech posts. The other really difficult thing here is sometimes you'll see posts that aren't actually really clear at first glance that are obvious discrimination against the Rohingya because they won't have certain words or they won't have, you know, images that suddenly suggest that it's propaganda against the Rohingya. Instead, what they do is they create almost a bit of a information war. They'll plant certain fake news stories. So, for example, a respected monk might post something along the lines of, We have seen in the past mosques are stockpiling weapons. So one of the most famous monks here is Wirathu and he leads a group called Mabatha and they're all about protecting the Buddhist religion. But at the same time, this group has actually been criticized by other Buddhists saying this is not what we stand for and we don't stand with the hate speech that they have been putting online. Facebook has now taken a step to close down his Facebook page But who knows, this is also the question that's been raised is what we've also noticed in the last couple of weeks, even here in Myanmar, is that there's been a lot of Accounts that have suddenly come online that are that don't have an avatar, that um, don't have a clear name and suggest that they're actually fake accounts.
0: One of the things you mentioned though were these private groups where a lot of the hateful activity occurs and occurs in the extreme. One of the questions I put to the panel was isn't isn't controlling what happens in a private group the same as telling someone what they can and can't see in their own home?
1: Yeah, but this is this is a really tough question around privacy as well. But this is the problem is if we are able to say, well, here is a really clear group that's really well known for hate speech, both outside of Facebook um, in different rallies. And also now we can have a look at some of their posts that they've done publicly. And then if we are added into that group and we're able to see, yes, this is again, really clear hate speech happening. This is a really tough question around responsibility and um, where's the fine line between privacy um, and what is for the public good in terms of the security of others.
0: Thanks for listening to this Fourth Estate special edition. If you liked this and liked the show this week, please subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode and get in touch with us on Twitter at Fourth Estate AU. This show is produced in the studios of 2SER. I'm Nina Kopel. Until next time.